0: OK, so um, welcome to the First You Hero uh, Centre uh, series in the, in practical ethics. And um, I thought we have a number of visitors to the centre, so welcome to those of you who are visitors. And I thought that since you're, you've come, I, I may as well do the first talk. Um, and and it's, it's called Designing Babies. So how this will run is there'll be roughly sort of 40 minutes of, of talk and then, you know, 40, 45 minutes of discussion. And then, for those of you in the centre, uh, we will we will adjourn to a welcome drink afterwards. But um, I just want to start with this uh, very famous uh, film and this uh, this particular section of the film. I'll show you about three minutes of this. Say
1: that a child conceived in love has a greater chance of happiness. They don't say that anymore. Mm-hmm. I'll never understand what possessed my mother to put her faith in god's hands rather than those of her local geneticist ten fingers ten toes that's all that used to matter not now now only seconds old the exact time and cause of my death was already known
0: neurological condition 60 percent probability Manic
2: depression, 42% probability. Attention deficit disorder, 89% probability. Heart disorder, 99% probability. Early fatal potential. Life expectancy, 30.2 years. 30
0: years. The name of the certificate? Anton?
1: No, um, Vincent Anton. That's a good name. i to do something. i do something. Vincent? From an early age, I came to think of myself as others thought of me.
2: Chronically ill.
1: Every skinned knee and runny nose was treated as if it were life-threatening.
2: I'm sorry, the insurance won't cover it. If he fell... But I was told that everything was... I really help. wish there was something I could do
0: is
1: like most other parents of their day they were determined that their next child would be brought into the world in what has become the natural way
2: your extracted eggs Marie have been fertilized with Antonio's sperm after screening we are left as you see with two healthy boys and two very healthy girls Naturally, no critical predispositions to any of the major inheritable diseases. All that remains is to select the most compatible candidate. First, we may as well decide on gender. Have you given it any fun? Uh We would want Vincent to have a brother, you know, um, to play with. Of course you would. Hello, Vincent. <laughs> you have specified hazel eyes, dark hair, and uh, fair skin. I have taken the liberty of eradicating any potentially prejudicial conditions. Premature baldness, myopia, alcoholism, and addictive susceptibility, and propensity for violence, obesity, etc. We didn't want, I mean, diseases, yes, but... Right, we were just wondering if, if it's good to just leave a few things to, to chance. You want to give your child the best possible start. Believe me, we have enough imperfection built in already. Your child doesn't need any additional burdens. And keep in mind, this child is still you. Simply the best of you. Could conceive naturally a thousand times and never get such a result.
0: Okay, so heart-wrenching and disgusting. You know, it's, it's a terrible thing to watch that film and, and um, it's, it's always raised when uh, people talk about design babies. Um, I'm actually going to defend what this doctor is talking about today and I'm I'm going to argue not only is is this something we should be permitted to do, we have a moral obligation to engage in this sort of practice. Um, Yesterday the Daily Mail reported a couple who lost their son to a rare brain cancer have welcomed the arrival of a designer baby after having treatment to stop him inheriting the deadly disease like his brother. Nikki and Neil Halford, both 36, were heartbroken when their son, Ben, five, lost his three-year battle with cancer. Mrs Halford is a carrier of the rare Lee fraumeni cancer gene and fought off breast cancer herself at the age of 21. Thanks to the treatment, eight-week-old Tom now faces only a 4% risk of developing cancer instead of 50%. Mr Halford said... Some people are against it because they say science should not mess with nature. We wanted to give the best possible chance. That's the reason we had to do it. I'm going to argue that we should give uh, the next generation the best possible chance. But that involves not only selecting against disease, it involves positive selection. A little bit like what you saw in Gallagher. Now, just for those of you who don't understand or don't know the background (laughs) science, I'm sure all you do, there are two ways in which you can currently um, select what kind of offspring you have. The first and more common way is by testing the fetus at around 10 weeks of gestation, so-called prenatal testing, and you can test for sex or a wide range of genetic conditions through either what's called chorionic villus sampling, sampling a piece of the placenta, or amniocentesis sampling, some of the amniotic fluid around the fetus. So this is the most common way of testing the fetus. The fetus is afflicted by a genetic condition. The only option at the moment is abortion and uh, trying again to have another child. More recently, um, in vitro fertilisation has progressed to enable couples to produce a number of embryos, as you saw in this film, And those embryos can be tested for their genetics. At the moment, a range of chromosomes are tested, roughly five, including the sex chromosome, looking for sex chromosome disorders, and also single-gene disorders like cystic fibrosis, thalassemia. So you can test for uh, diseases like, um, as I said, cystic fibrosis, but also Down syndrome, other chromosomal abnormalities. And over my lifetime, initially this was restricted to... (coughs) life-threatening conditions like cystic fibrosis and thalassemia, uh, then to more severe genetic conditions that weren't life-threatening, more recently to adult onset conditions like breast cancer and, uh, and bowel <coughs> cancer that have a genetic disposition, and Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, many uh, places in the world have further relaxed the restraints on this to allow testing for any disease so in Australia now you can do any test on the embryo, provided it's for a disease. Legislation is similar in the UK, you can test for diseases, but what is absolutely forbidden in uh, most European and Australian jurisdictions is to test for non-disease conditions. So you can't do sex selection and you can't test for any dispositions to other trays such that they might exist. Now, I'm going to argue, first of all, that, that this that the, this is immoral, uh, that it's actually closer to the eugenics that many people accuse supporters of de- designer babies of. And in the second part of the talk, I'll argue not only should people be allowed to do it, not only should they be free to do it, they have an obligation to do it. OK, so, first of all, This idea that it's okay to test for diseases but not okay to test for other genetic conditions is based on an irrelevant distinction. The distinction between disease and health, between treatment and enhancement. The most famous philosophers that have written on this topic, Michael Sandel, Jurgen Habermas, all say that it's all right to do genetic testing for diseases. but not for non-disease states. They they all adhere to this treatment enhancement distinction. Now, this distinction, as I said, is false, and and here's a very easy way to see it. A couple of years ago, a woman in Virginia was executed uh, for conspiring to to kill her husband. And um, in Virginia, if you're uh, intellectually disabled, you're put in life imprisonment instead of executed. So her counsel asked for IQ testing, and, and, um, and luckily for her, her IQ was 72. The cutoff for intellectual disability, the disease, is 70. So she was executed. Now, there is no functional difference between an IQ of 69 and 72. Uh, and nor was this line drawn for the purposes of deciding who should live and who should die. The line represents two standard deviations below the mean of subfunctioning. It's a purely statistical definition. Now, why would the point on a statistical curve have moral significance? We could have easily have defined intellectual disability as one standard deviation below the mean on IQ less than 85, in which case this woman would be alive. Um, two standard deviations was picked out to create a a population of people who we could research, provide social excuses for, get special uh, support during education. But there's no deep relevance of that statistical point. Now, there are are diseases like cancer uh, and Parkinson's disease that are hard pathological conditions. But many diseases, particularly those involved in psychiatry, and involving um, mental capacities are statistical in nature. So there are now there are now 10% of children in the New Zealand on, on Ritalin for attention deficit disorder. So is there suddenly a, a new epidemic of attention deficit disorder in New Zealand, or is this something specific to the New Zealanders that they they they're kind of genetically selected to you know to be to be to have attention deficit? No. That people found that Ritalin helped children, the lower 10% of children, and they invented a disease called attention deficit disorder and have drawn a line not at 2%, but at 10%. So the idea that there is some bright line between disease and health that grounds a, uh, you know, a, a permission to test for diseases but not for other conditions is, I think, deeply mistaken. OK, so I think the argument that Sandel, Habermas and indeed the, all of the uh, regulatory bodies that regulate is outside of the United States, um, are, basing their, are basing their policy on a mistake, mistaken understanding of what really matters. Um, and I'll come back to that. One of the major concerns that people have when we talk about designing babies is that this is eugenics. It's what the Nazis did. So I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Nazi eugenic program that culminated in the infamous extermination camps that sought to destroy life unfit for life. But in fact, European and and many states in the United States had similar eugenic programs involving involuntary sterilisation. And the object of these programs were the intellectually disabled poor people and criminals. And the idea of eugenics is that the next generation should be well-born. Eugenics comes from the Greek, meaning well-born. Now, the Nazis would have fully approved of current programs for testing for diseases, like Down syndrome and Fragile X syndrome, both of them causes of intellectual disability. So if your concern is with eugenics then we better stop testing for the causes of intellectual disability, which, of course, are widely screened for as a part of prenatal testing. One disability activist, Gregor Walbring, said to me when I first presented uh, my paper on the obligation to have the best child in, in about 2000, said to me, when you say it's okay to abort a baby or an embryo with a disability but not okay to abort a normal baby, you are saying that the lives of people with disability are less deserving of respect or have a lower moral status. When you allow abortion for disability but not for sex selection, you're saying that people with disability have less of a right to life. Now, there's something deeply mistaken with what he's saying, and I'll come on to that in a moment, but there's also some truth in it. Either the embryo or fetus has a moral status, then it would be wrong to kill either of them, whether or not they're disabled, whether or not they're healthy or diseased. And if the embryo or fetus doesn't have a moral status, it should be permissible to destroy an embryo or fetus for any reason. In this way, paradoxically, allowing testing at the prenatal stage or at the embryonic stage for diseases, but not for other conditions or states, is eugenic in precisely the way that people are concerned that creative design of babies is. Testing for some characteristic, like intelligence or sex, is sometimes said to send a message. The people who lack that characteristic have lives which are less valuable or, more specifically, are of lower moral status or less deserving of protection and respect. Selecting a male, the argument goes, sends the message that females are less valuable. But we should... All of us in this room, I think, would believe treat all people equally, regardless of race, sex or disability. So genetic testing is seen to send the wrong message about the equality of people. Again, a return to the eugenics policies of the Nazis. However, exactly the same thing can be said about testing for disease. Testing for cystic fibrosis or Down syndrome can be said to send a message to people with those conditions that their lives are less valuable and that those people of lower status. And that's precisely what people with cystic fibrosis and Down syndrome, well, parents of people with Down syndrome, say when you engage them in debate. They say this is sending a message that our lives are less valuable. Now, this is deeply mistaken. as should be obvious from the cases of testing for diseases. To say that a disease is bad, a disease is bad, is not to say that the person with the disease is in any way bad or less equal or inferior in some way. The problem is that some people identify with their disease, disorder or some other characteristic about themselves but we're all individual people above and beyond our diseases and that's what's deserving of equal respect regardless of the features of ourselves. To say that X is bad or not desired by me is not to say that John or Julie with X has fewer rights. I have asthma but I think I have as much rights as anyone else here. But I still think that asthma is a bad condition, it should be treated, and if I had embryo selection, I would select against asthma, because it raises hurdles. Cystic fibrosis is a disease, it's not a person, and it's a bad disease. So the conflation that people with disability make when they say that this expresses something about people with disability, when you select against an embryo or a fetus, is they're assuming that the embryo or fetus is a person. And if you believe that, then you shouldn't do any abortion for social reasons or for anything. So that's one confusion. The last common objection to creating designer babies that I've encountered after giving hundreds of talks is it would have bad social effects. And this is the easiest to see in the example of sex selection, where sex selection has seriously disturbed the sex ratio in parts of India or China. Now, I personally think that social reasons can provide a justification for interfering in freedom of reproduction. Um, Massive overpopulation would be a reason to restrict fertility. China was probably right to implement its one-child policy at the time. People should not be having 10 children today. The best example of legitimate coercion in reproduction is the example of Cyprus. Cyprus in the 1980s was facing an epidemic of thalassemia, highly endemic genetic disorder in Cyprus. Thalassemia is a blood disorder. Uh, it's fatal in the 20s, and uh, it requires blood transfusions, massive amounts of medical treatment. Thalassemia was bankrupting the health budget and using almost entirely the blood supply of Cyprus. How did Cyprus respond to this problem? The Church, in fact, very cleverly said, if you want to be married in the Church you have to have carrier testing. Each, pu- each couple has to see whether they carry the gene for thalassemia, and if they both carry it, there's a one in four chance their baby will have thalassemia. Now, if, so if you want to be married, you have to have the carrier testing. They didn't say you had to have prenatal testing. They didn't say you'd have to have an abortion. Virtually everyone, though, who found that they were carriers decided to have prenatal testing and have an abortion, and thalassemia rad- radically reduced. Now, that was a minimal level of coercion it was entirely appropriate to the magnitude of the public interest and the gravity of the problem in in Cyprus. So I'm a friend of social intervention or intervention and reproduction for the purposes of the public interest in certain circumstances. But those circumstances have to be very rare. We need to have an uncontroversially good social purpose, the restriction that we employ must be necessary to achieve the purpose... And there there should be no less liberty-restricting policy that could also achieve that purpose. So what they did in Cyprus was not demand that everyone have prenatal testing and abortion. They said, just you have to have carry testing. They tried that and it worked. Now, bans on the use of genetic testing for non-disease states, even sex, radically fail this test in countries like the United Kingdom and Australia. There is no reason to ban sex selection in countries like the United Kingdom to maintain a roughly equal sex ratio. The sex ratio could be monitored, sex ratio could be allowed only for females, or it could be allowed only for what's called family balancing, allowing people to have a the child of the opposite sex to the, the children that they have. In all three, all three of these policies would protect the sex ratio in the United Kingdom. But in fact, you don't even need to do that, because there's no reason to believe that what happens in China or India would be replicated in the United Kingdom. Why is that? If you're allowed sex selection using IVF. Because couples can already have sex selection in this country. You just go and have an amniocentesis or a CVS at 10 weeks, and if you've got the wrong sex, you have an abortion. Everyone is entitled to have that. Everyone can already have sex selection. The problems in India and China have not been caused by designer babies, by testing embryos and selecting them for them. It's been caused by having terminations of pregnancy and infanticide. And both of those things could occur in the UK today. We don't need access to IVF and and PGD to do that. So there's absolutely no social reason in the UK to prevent people from uh, employing sex selection. Or consider more controversially future tests for intelligence, empathy and so on. One of the major objections to this is that diversity is necessary for social functioning. You often hear the idea, we need people. Different intelligence, the argument goes, to fill all the jobs. Or we need a certain number of psychopaths in the population. For some reason, I'm, not, I'm never sure what the reason... But so, sometimes people say, well, because we need... They're really successful in, in running companies. In fact, the data shows that they ruin companies. They are successful at getting to the top. But they're not good. And I think um, Bob Hare, the father of uh, tests for, for, um, for, for psychoticism and psychopathy even attributed part of the global financial crisis to psychopathy. Um, So these are incredibly controversial claims and a poor basis for restricting people's liberty to access genetic tests. So regulation of genetic testing to bring about social goals is controversial and can in a limited number of circumstances where there's good evidence that an uncontroversially good social goal would be achieved be employed, but that doesn't apply to virtually all of the cases under discussion. Now, there's a basic principle that John Stuart Mill articulated, and I'm sure all of you are familiar with, called the harm principle. It says the only legitimate reason for the state to interfere in the liberty of people is when they th- threaten, the, um, threaten to harm other people, or they harm other people. Now, people who are employing these tests are not harming other people the claims that they will destroy the sex root and disturb the sex root, the claim that they will cause some sort of social disturbance, are purely speculative. And that's not a good basis for restricting liberty. So, to finish the first section, paradoxically, the current policy of restricting liberty in order to achieve a certain social goal and aiming at testing for diseases is more eugenic than allowing people the freedom to make choices about reproduction themselves. So the current policy that we have is more eugenic than its alternative. And secondly, it's deeply immoral because it restricts freedom in an unjustified way. So, conclusion of the first part, should be free to use these sorts of tests. Now, I want to go further than that and say not only should you be free to use them, that you're under a moral obligation to, to employ these tests. Now, what do I mean by moral obligation? I obviously don't mean an all-things-considered overwhelming moral obligation. I, mean, I don't know what you have an all-things-considered moral obligation at this point. You know, nothing. You, you have a number of prima facie obligations. They need to be weighed against each other. Or you have a number of prima facie moral reasons that need to be weighed against each other to decide what you do. You've got obligations to care for the climate, look after your children, look after yourself, and so on. All of these need to be weighed. But nonetheless... We do have an obligation to select the genes of our children in the same way that we have an obligation to educate them and preserve their health. Okay, so what are the arguments in favour of that? Well, before I go on to those, the first point to note is the hypocrisy that typifies this kind of debate. Selection of gametes is absolutely routine. Those qualities are all identified, qualities that you're talking about here, intelligence, social success, uh, athleticism. All of these things are tested for on questionnaires of of sperm donors and where egg donors in the US are um, are able to sell their eggs, exactly the same sorts of qualities are are tested for there. So to give you an example, um, a Cambridge couple last year... Put an advertisement in uh, around around the Cambridge newspapers and on notice boards, looking for Cambridge University eggs, and they were willing to pay 750 pounds. Mm-hmm. And they said they wanted they wanted to feel as if there was a connection with the donor. Okay, so it's all right to advertise for elite eggs, provided it's on the grounds of having a connection. Um, now, in the US, of course, there's a free market system. Donors are paid more if they're good-looking, uh, if they're intelligent, if they're athletic. Um, a first-time donor earns 6500 Some agencies will pay $10,000 uh, will, and will say it's because she's Ivy League educated or she's a model. In Thailand, $3,000 for an egg and 20000 for the sought-after over of US college students. Um, in South Africa, one uh, dating website uh, one donor catalog, which is like a dating website a- advertises Annabelle from Pretoria a one point six meter seventy two kilogram thirty two year old uh, lady with brown hair and hazel eyes who likes adrenaline sports. so we accept donor selection when it comes to gametes and in fact, we look for mates who have Certain qualities that we want to be embodied in our children. So, the first the first point to note is that already we implicitly accept many cases of selection of children based on genetic qualities. Now, the more deep and important point is that genes do matter. I mean, the disc that I had I had another disc of this, and it says there's no gene for the human spirit. You know, and Yeah, there is no gene for the human spirit. (laughs) That's, you know, so what? Um, (laughs) The fact is that genes do determine, or not determine, but make a significant influence over many of the characteristics that shape our lives. So roughly 50% of our personality, our intelligence, uh, and many other qualities are genetic in origin. And even if that contribution was only 5%, why wouldn't you try to control that 5% if you can? Now think of some um, valuable properties like intelligence. It takes an IQ of 90 to complete a tax return. With an IQ of 120, you can have any job. However, people in the low normal range of 70 to 85 are virtually unemployable, but still within the normal range. Um, why wouldn't we influence the genetics of our offspring if we were going to avoid low normal intelligence, which is not a disease? Consider other valuable traits. Self-control. Walter Mischel in the 1960s conducted these famous impulse control experiments with three-year-old children. You can see them on YouTube. He put a marshmallow in front of the children. He said, don't eat the marshmallow. And when I come back, I'll give you two went away, some children ate the marshmallows, some didn't. They sat on their hands, they looked around, they developed strategies to delay gratification. Ten years later, those children who were able to delay gratification had more friends, more motivation to succeed, um, and this tray was more highly correlated with their um, university entrance than their SAT scores were. If you have very poor self-control, like children with attention deficit disorder, um, you're very likely to end up in trouble with the law at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale. If you can control, through genetic selection, a level or avoid very low self-control, very poor impulse control, very poor inability to delay gratification, that would fundamentally shape the uh, that person's life and the opportunities available to them. Memory, empathy, sympathy, creativity, patience, hard work, optimism, generosity and our, the sunniness of our disposition all vary between people. None of us are equal. Um, and that's not all due to how we've grown up. In fact, a significant proportion of it is genetic. So unless you think that everyone has the optimum amount of these sorts of traits or dispositions, then you should think that we should influence uh, or that we should choose those genes which provide children with better opportunities. Think of it this way... Pick some property that you think is valuable in yourself or your children. So you might think intelligence, musicality, empathy, ability to understand other people's emotions, whatever you like. But I'll I'll just pick IQ because you can put a number on it. So say, you know, you're all here in Oxford, you presumably didn't bribe your way in, Um, so you've managed to get here in part through your abilities. Um, So you, you probably have an IQ of 120. Now, say you find out that something is is getting into the, the water, lead's getting into the water, uh, and you can buy, and it's going to drop your IQ to one hundred and ten, still normal, still above the average, one hundred, and all you have to do is buy a lead filter for your tap. I'm sure all of you would be rushing to get the lead filter. I certainly would, because you wouldn't want your IQ to to drop to one hundred and ten. Likewise for your children, people would people would would buy that. In, in fact, lead was removed. From petrol and from paint for precisely this reason reduce, would reduce people's IQ. It didn't cause vast epidemics of intellectual disability, it's just dropping people within the normal range. So now let's assume that your child has an IQ of 110 and you can put something in the water, like a vitamin, or give the child fish oil that will increase the child's IQ to 120. In both cases, if you don't do that, exactly the same situation arises. Child or you have a state which is less valuable than it could have been. Genetic selection operates in exactly the same way, or almost exactly the same way, to make a choice not of whether you have one child who has a disease or another child who is healthy, but one child who is born with something that we uncontroversially think is valuable to a greater degree than another child. Or take the opposite, psychopathy, or callous unemotional traits in children. The film we have to Talk About Kevin is based on this trait called callous unemotional personality in children. Children who don't respond to love from their parents, don't have regard for other people's emotions or other animals' emotions. They'll burn cats alive, torture animals. And many of these children go on to, to become psychopaths. It's a very strong genetic contribution to that trait. Now, if you could test for that genetic contribution, the moment we don't have the precise constellation of genes, but even if you could reduce the probability of having a child who would go on to be callous and unemotional or a psychopath, why wouldn't you do that? In fact, we're trying to find treatments for these conditions. The same for all of the vices, like selfishness, greed, and so on. Now, one of the objections I constantly get when I give this talk is, well, there is no single gene for the human spirit. There is no genes for these things. Well, in fact, we're starting to uncover the genetic contribution to many of these traits. One uh, variation of the so-called COMT gene, the VAL variant, is associated with three times as much altruism in economic games. Um, Fidelity, or ability to stay within one relationship, and uh, that relationship to be a happy one, has been associated with the AVPR1A gene, and a mutation in that. And probably the most well-studied and striking example is the monoamine oxidase A gene. Now, I think it was back in the 80s, um, a Dutch geneticist identified a mutation on the X chromosome that was coding for um, an enzyme called monoamine oxidase A, which is involved in the regulation of neurotransmitters in the brain. And this was a nonsense mutation. People with this mutation had no functioning of, of MAO A. All of the people who had this were criminals, violent criminals, and in jail. The other half of the males in the family who didn't have that mutation, were perfectly normal, engineers, doctors, perfectly functional, in fact the maternal grandfather, I think it was, brought it to Brunner's attention. There's something wrong with our family. And this was a, a mutation in MayoA. This is a gene for criminality. People tried to invoke this defence in subsequent cases, and the judges threw it out, because they, they said there's no evidence that you have this X-linked pattern of inheritance in your family of this genetic disorder. But a New Zealander, a guy called Caspi, um, looked for not this nonsense mutation, but a polymorphism, a variation. So A comes in two variants. A high-activity variant, two-thirds of people have the high-activity variant, and a low-activity variant. One-third of people have the low-activity variant. Caspi found, when he studied many thousands of people in in, United, in uh, New Zealand that if you had the low-activity variant, together with um, early childhood abuse or deprivation, you're much, much more likely to become a violent criminal and be in jail, much more likely than either of those factors independently. If you had, my, if you had Mayo A low and you had a normal upbringing, perfectly, you know, no more likely to be a criminal than other people. And if you had Mayo high and were abused, you're no more likely than the baseline to, to be criminal. But if you had the two together, This is a great example of a gene-environment interaction. Now, of course, you can if you you provide children with a normal upbringing, Mayo-Low won't express itself. But there doesn't seem to be any specific advantage to Mayo-Low. And if there is no specific advantage, why wouldn't you select children who are going to be resistant to something that you may not be able to control entirely? Um, So... If we accept that we should treat people for disease, and it's not disease which is intrinsically bad, but its impact on people's well-being, then we should accept that we should test for other genes that also contribute in some probabilistic way to people's well-being. And I find it very difficult to believe that there won't be any genetic conditions like Mayo A that don't have some influence over our life prospects. Another argument which I don't want to get on into at the moment is that with 20 embryos you can only do a certain number of genetic tests and so physically it's not, you know, you can't do that many genetic tests beyond des- testing for diseases. The point of all of these objections, either where well, you can't test for 20 embryos or there won't be any genes or there's going to be small probabilistic contributions or there's going to be hundreds of genes involved in schizophrenia, all of these objections just mean There is no debate around design of babies because you won't be able to do it. So it's not a very interesting objection, (laughs) because the interesting objection is if you can do it, should you do it? Um, And for what it's worth, I think you can, and I'll tell you why. If you look at the the greatest genetic experiment ever conducted, it shows you the power of genetics to determine phenotype. Over 10,000 years, all 300 different breeds of dogs that we have today have been derived by genetic selection from a small group of canids and wolves. And those dogs are vastly different. Some are vicious, some are placid, some are hardworking, some are lazy, some are stupid, some are smart. It's all genetic. You can't make a dumb dog smart by giving it lots of love, you know, or giving it a good diet. You can't make a chihuahua into a sort of pit bull terrier. Um, You can disable dogs by depriving them of food or physically abusing them but you can't change their fundamental nature, and that's genetic. So that shows you that <laughs> genetics has a huge kind of capacity. Now, we can't do that uh, in the same way with human beings, but it is an illustration in point of, of how important genetics is. Now, when I said we ha- I've i said we have, I'm going to finish here and say we have a moral obligation. In just the same ways here, we have an obligation to provide a good education, good health care for our children... And so on. If you believe that people should select healthier embryos, as most people do believe, if I said to you, if somebody said to me, Look, you know, um, I, um, I've had this genetic test and it shows that one of my embryos has cystic fibrosis and the other one's normal, what do you think I should do? Toss a coin or do you think I should select one? The answer is so blindingly obvious and virtually everyone would give it except people who have a kind of investment in their identity within cystic fibrosis? The answer is you should select a healthy one. And in the same way, if somebody says, you know, I've got two embryos, one of them's normal, and the other one's got a disposition to psychopathy, which do you think I should select? The answer is the one without the disposition to psychopathy. Or the one that's going to be more intelligent, or have better self-control, or have better memory. So it's not a controversial claim. I mean, in fact, it's an incredibly banal claim. <laughs> so what starts off as seeming incredibly controversial Actually, is more in line with common sense morality, and this film is everything I detest about modern bio- bioethics. It's a kind of breast beating, motherhood, kind of hugging each other about the values we all can uncontroversially share, and and people think that's what bioethics is. You know, if you look at the European Union, United States, you know, dignity, human dignity, equality, you know. Now, this is an affront to human dignity. But Actually, when you look at the arguments, they go precisely the opposite way. OK, so I want to give you time. There are many other bad objections um, to creating designer babies. I've got six of them here. Um, but I'll give you the chance to give some good objections to creating <laughs> designer babies. So, in conclusion, if you think that we have obligations to treat and prevent disease... It's because disease diminishes well-being, but other conditions threaten and diminish. maybe not as much as disease. I'm not saying that having poor self-control is as bad as having cancer, um, but having poor self-control, probably worse than having eczema. Um, and insofar as we think we have obligations to research, treat and prevent diseases and select against diseases exactly the same obligations to select those genetic traits. <laughs> that contribute to people's well-being. That's not to say that brown hair or blonde hair, blue eyes and so on have a contribution to well-being. But it is to say that there are some conditions and some genes that do have an important contribution. So let me finish there and uh, take some questions. Questions? Yeah. Um, So I hope this is at least not a bad objection. Um, I have kind of a worry about, so if there's something like linked traits or traits on the same gene or something like that, so, you know, imagine that um, there's some trait that a child could have that would be a tremendous benefit to society, but at a severe cost to that individual family. So an example I'm thinking of is sort of like your tortured genius or something like that, or tortured, you know, in the sense of like a mental illness or yeah. something like really severe, where, you know, the family certainly wouldn't want the child to have that. But if that trait is linked with some sort of
2: artistic or intelligent contribution, um, I feel like then society is kind of losing
0: out there. So I'm not sure how... Like the theory or deal or something like that. Well, there's a well known for those of you um, in in um, in philosophy studied moral philosophy, there's this well known dualism of practical reason. There's a there's a there's a kind of, there are two kind of big reasons, reasons of self-interest and reasons for morality. Now morality obviously requires the sacrifice to some degree of self-interest. So how how you weigh your obligations of self-interest and morality is is one of the great unresolved questions and this is an instantiation of that dilemma now in this case self-interest is what you know what will be best for your child versus what will be best for society and i think in my view in my view um, we we only have a moral obligation a strong moral obligation to do what's called duty uh, an easy rescue where the cost to you is small but the benefit to others is large so, in this case, if the, the negative trade was creating some diminution in well-being, which was small, and the benefit to society was enormous, then I think you could say that, that there would be an obligation to select such a child. If the cost of the child is very significant, and then the, the, you know, the benefit to society is very significant, like giving your life up for five other people, or for your country, I don't think you have a moral obligation to do that. So... You know that's my answer to it but it just depends on what your answer is for that now this isn't quite self-interest but it's a structurally a similar kind of dilemma. Um, Pac. Uh
3: One point of clarification and one question for uh, the clarification when you talk about design a baby you seem to mention testing and screening and all this I wonder whether there's passive and active difference like whether we passively select... Well, we select things and we try to avoid that or we will actively put some traits in the
4: babies.
0: Yeah, well, see, I, well, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're saying, but um, you can't put traits in the baby by by genetic selection. That would be enhancement. But I, I, what I do think... I personally think, again, there's no, dis, there's no moral distinction between the effects of our acts and the effects of our, our emissions. Many people believe that um, in these cases... If you fail to select, if you don't select, if you don't do anything actively, then you know, you're you not responsible for the outcome. But there's a huge difference between a situation where you were powerless to influence the course of events. So if there wasn't testing for Down syndrome or mm-hmm. psychopathy or whatever. Um, versus when there is a test, but you fail to use it. Okay, So should we blame the mother of Hitler for having Hitler? <laughs> Nothing she could do, you know. If there was testing available for the sorts of trays that you know, you could have reliably predicted in... I mean, this is, this is a thought experiment, but reliably predicted that would have had a high likelihood leading to a person like that, in that sort of social milieu, and she failed to use those tests, she would be responsible um, by failing to do the tests. So it makes all the difference in the world whether you have the power to influence events and choose not to use it versus when you don't.
3: And also a question, well, in your first, kind of first part, you mentioned, well, the argument I understand is like you try to reject those who oppose to designing babies, but then the question, what your argument is to say, how should I put it, disease and non-disease are kind of a natural uh, social construction, so there's no difference between disease and non-disease and therefore we can go with testing non-disease as well. Uh, But then to questions, the conclusion seems to me too quick because when we talked about disease, it seems to link to some kind of harm to the child. So in that sense, it's still different from disease and non-disease condition. One brings for harm and the other might not do so. So the conclusion might not be- Yeah, well, I mean, this
0: is a kind of complicated debate. In fact, what, I think disease is a category that uh, historically has been best defined um, by Christopher Boars as as biostatistical subfunctioning. I think that's what accounts for what appears in pathology textbooks. Guy Kahane and I have been <coughs> int- trying to introduce a new concept of disability, or, and our view of what a disability is, and diseases would be what would be a subclass of disability. Mm. Um, A disability is any state of biology or psychology that tends to reduce the chances of well-being in a given set of social and natural circumstances. So both disease and non-disease traits can harm in the sense that they dispose to lower levels of well-being. So in this sense lower levels of self-control would be a disability in the same way as deafness would be a disability in the sort of world that we live in today. I mean, you know, in the past it may not have mattered. as much. Dyslexia is an example where that, you know, that wouldn't have mattered historically. Today it does matter because it reduces well-being. So, I wouldn't, so when you talk about non-disease traits, there's lots of things like, you know, does, does having blonde hair... I mean, we we can deal with the issue of the social construction in virtual people's prejudice and so on about well-being. And one of the... Maybe I'll deal with this now because I'm sure this will come up. People always say, "Well, you know, on this view, you should select white babies in a racist society, and you should select um, males in a sexist society, because those those embryos will have a better chance of a better life." Um, in fact, if you you you, do, you should do that if you want the child to have the best life. But of course, there are other reasons. Than the child having the best life, you might want to try to correct social prejudice and injustice, and that would be a separate reason to how well the child's life would go. Okay, now if you think about a child born, you know, in Afghanistan, you know, at the moment, um, or under the Taliban, and you had, you know, a choice of a male or a female, it's straightforward that if you want the child to have the best chance of the best life, you have a male. Um, but you know, you might have other reasons for action besides. The well being of the, of the potential children. Um, so, Ingemar, you had your hand up.
5: Uh, I did indeed, but uh, not very important. Uh, when you uh, s- discussed this obje- objection by people who've got various diseases like cystic fibrosis or so on, you said that your view doesn't make those people less valuable or so on. But I don't think that is, that needn't be their objection. Their objection could be you're saying that their life is less valuable. And that is what you're saying. And you have a moral view that we should sort of maximize the value of life and so on. So it would follow on your view. If you can't remove a disease from a person, uh, <laughs> to remove, by
0: another yeah, he 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 he's not a he's not a student. He's a professional philosopher, and, and and this is indeed a a, a very good but point. It's an
5: objection
0: hit me as well. But no, no, but, uh, yeah. but I'll 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 give you. I'll, I'll You're completely correct. But I'll now try and defend it. Many people. The NHS is based on this principle of strict egalitarianism: equal treatment for equal need. Okay, now. We all love that. It's this sort of motherhood statement that, you know, everyone should be treated according to their need and that's what the NHS should be doing and we all kind of hug each other around that sort of... that really, you know, warming principle. Um, And a a great example of when this came into sort of real question was in... about 10 years ago, the Royal Brompton Hospital was challenged by a group of of, um, parents of children with Down syndrome who said... You are not operating on our children when you would operate on other children with the same cardiac condition. So these kids had abnormalities of you know holes in the heart, various cardiac. They could be corrected, and instead of operating, they just left them. And the justification was in part that they believed it was better for the child to die in their thirties of heart failure than to get the accelerated Alzheimer's disease that happens with Down syndrome at a time when their parents would be dying and they would then have to be institutionalised. So it was a very paternalistic decision. And, you know, it, I think, was rightly questioned. And they had the availability of doing these cardiac operations, they just were choosing not to do... on what they judged was the value of that life. Fair enough. So I, I wrote this and said, you know, this is a violation of a kind of reasonable principle of egalitarianism. But well, then I said, but actually, we do think there's, we should value people's lives in certain situations. So in the UK, in Australia, certainly in Australia, there are not enough paediatric heart, children's hearts for transplantation. There's only, there's only enough for two-thirds of the demand. So only two out of three children who have heart failure get a heart transplant. The others die. Now, children with Down syndrome also get heart transplants. I don't know about the United States or Canada, um, but they're not transplanted in Australia. And I had a friend who was, a, was working at the children's hospital and she had a brother who had Down syndrome. She wanted to get him a heart transplant. She took him to the cardiac service and they said, we can put him on a list, but you'll never get a heart transplant. Um, and the reason is that if you transplanted a child with Down syndrome, a child without Down syndrome would die. Now, they were making a judgement about the value of people's lives and the value of extending their lives you might say, that's shocking, Down syndrome, it's... I don't want to get into discussions about you know, how good or bad Down syndrome, it's a principle. Because if you think that Down syndrome should be given an equal chance, take something more severe, like trisomy 18. This is a much more severe genetic disorder. profound intellectual disability, dying in sort of early years of life, and they have heart failure. No one, not, you would not stand a chance in hell of getting a one-year-old child with trisomy 18 a heart transplant under a public system. I mean, doctors would not do it because they just said the amount of benefit you provide for that person, even though it's a person or a human being, is 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 lower. So at some levels, we, we're egalitarians, but at some levels, you know, we want to take length and quality of life into account and the allocation of resources and who lives and who dies. So Ingmar is completely correct that, you know, I am committed to evaluation of life, but... So is just about everyone, unless you think that every human being, regardless of that, whether they're going to live for a day, you know, or 20 years, or whether they're, you know, they, they're not even conscious, or they're fully conscious, should have an equal chance of, of access to medical resources. And there are a few egalitarian like that. So, other questions? Yep. Uh,
2: it seems to me that if parents were empowered to select the sex of their, ch- their children, you would probably have at least in countries with less developed welfare states. Uh, where sort of children are more obliged to provide a living for their family uh, have an increasing male to female ratio, I mean one can probably argue about that, but my question would be, I mean assuming that would happen, uh, do you think that it would still be a good idea, I mean is the freedom aspect to it predominant, or how would you think about Well,
0: you know as I said I'm a, I'm a supporter of interventions in reproduction for a significant public interest, if the Public interest was significant enough in maintaining a certain sex ratio, then, you know, I think it's legitimate to intervene. Um, so I think it is legitimate to restrain freedom uh, in certain circumstances, as I said. Um, so you know, I'm not a libert- complete libertarian, but I think you have to have. I mean, that and that argument that you gave is exactly why, in a one-child policy like China, where the children are expected that there is no social, there was no social welfare, that's why there's a big skewed ratio in China. In India it's slightly different. It's because you have to pay about £20,000 dowry if you've got a... So, you know, a girl means poverty. <laughs> and also and I think Hinduism, only a son can burn the, the the parents and send them to wherever Hindus go. So there are religious and cultural reasons. And in China it was exactly the same. You know, it's clearly it's better to get rid of those you know... <laughs> kind of institutions that sort of cause the problem, that's the preferable. But if you can't, um, then, you, you know, you might have to intervene in reproduction.
2: Why would you then allow it in the first place and then have a policy to intervene
0: rather than... Well, I mean, if you uh, could reliably predict that that would happen, you could you could set up a policy. Yeah, but so often, I mean, I've mean, right responding to this... this arch kind of academic enemy of mine, Rob Sparrow, and he... <laughs> He, his favorite argument is just to predict some precipitous catastrophic you know collapse whenever you raise anything so it's going to lead to this well of course you know, you know it's, go- it's going to lead to oppression of people it's going to lead to okay, anything you know like you know sterilization was used to oppress people by you know the Nazis and people in the United States you know. They use the gas chamber. Your gas can be used to oppress. There's lots of the, everything can be used to oppress. Any powerful technology, and I think this is a critical point. You think designer babies? Who cares? You know, film, and we can't do much now anyway. We can only do sex selection, and who, you know, it's not such an important moral issue. In fact, it is a, like paradigmatic of one of the most important moral issues that we face. Genetic selection is an example of a powerful technology. It's a powerful technology that can be used for good and for bad. And the growing tendency today, particularly in the United States, under the sort of rise of the sort of religious fundamentalists, is to moralistically <coughs> restrict or regulate access to that. Not on good grounds of harm to others. Not, well, often they invoke these post hoc speculations of some sort of harm. But on the grounds of beliefs of people about how we should live our lives. So it's a challenge to our commitments to freedom when we embrace these new technologies. And what happened in the, you know, 50s was that, you know, people were... Homosexuality was a crime. And, and you know, fortunately, people had the sense that say, this is a, you know, this is not affecting other people except their attitudes. And, you know, was supposed to be an offence to public morals. And that was fortunately overturned. We see exactly the same sorts of things creeping in now in, in different perverse ways around the roles of homosexual, homosexuals anyway, and, and in using this sort of technology. So the same argument could be applied to the, you know, the use of virtual reality, of beaming, of you know, advanced you know, information technology, whatever you like. And, you know, what, so you know, I think that the, the sound principles are you should regulate when there's a clear threat to, to, of harm to others or a clear public interest. Of, of significant harm, like, you know, people can't work or live or whatever and then you should, if you want to advocate certain moral views, you should advocate them but not coerce people, you know, I'm advocating that people should use this for selection but I'm not saying they must and people can advocate that they shouldn't and that somehow you know, reproduction should be natural and you know, this, is, you know, this is the Catholic. it's fine for them to advocate that, it shouldn't be the basis of our laws though um, but increasingly that's, that's not the case Yep.
2: Um, I've got a question based around this um, hard public good uh, principle I mean, my first thought would be that it doesn't seem like. I imagine that uh, a genetic screening test for a certain condition that we have now seems like such a clear cut decision uh, for the public good but presumably at the time it was extremely contentious so it's hard to say there's a principle that when there's a clear benefit for the public good we should take that part because I imagine at the time it's never actually that clear when you're introducing something new like that. And I think the larger issue with this is that we're dealing with a a system, the the human race, and we are then, if we follow this principle of of the selection, allowing um, subjective and and fairly, um, I don't know, I wouldn't say unconsidered, but suddenly not fully developed uh, theories on what traits are best. To be handed down to parents and to doctors, which could cause a dramatic alteration in the nature of our species. I mean, you could argue that the same for any technology has changed <coughs> the world, but that hasn't actually changed the individuals inside it. Theoretically, if our civilization collapsed, it would be the same as we ever were, are a bit taller and maybe with uh, worse eyesight, but. Um, I think that the issues with, with genetics are that we don't have any awareness. Like, you say that you'd eliminate dyslexia or something like that, but maybe it turns out that there's something you'd eliminate in dyslexia, which would be absolutely crucial. I know mean, that's not a what-if situation, but we really don't know a lot of these things.
0: Yeah, well, you raise lots of different objections there, so I'll try to, to sort of deal with some of them. Um, <clears throat> first of all, we we are... we are The, the, the gene pool of... of Of humanity is actually accumulating more and more mutations and is deteriorating, and then you know there's sort of good biological evidence of this because we're able to keep everyone alive now. So we're not maintaining with the status quo. you You know, if you wanted to just maintain the genetic status quo, you'd actually want to do genetic selection anyway. So if that was your goal, and sometimes I so sometimes I hear the objection which is related to this is we need genetic diversity because it's important to the continuation of the species. Like, So, you know, if there's an infectious threat, we need to have genetic diversity. And that's certainly been... Uh, you know, this isn't your main objection, I just want to get this out, because you know, I think it, it's in many people's... Genetic diversity itself is important. Now, it was important, you know, through human history, because if, when you had something like an AIDS epidemic, there, was, there were some people who had a natural resistance to it. The rest died off, they continued the population. That's not how we deal with AIDS today. We don't wait for you know a few kind of genetically resistant people to <coughs> be popular. You know, we develop preventative strategies and treatments. Now you might say that well there might be some infectious agent in the future that would you know rely on a huge genetic diversity. Um, there may be. We can also engineer genetic diversity you know using technology as well. So it's not as if we're we maintain with the genetic diversity, and and also if that were your if that were your concern, you would just maintain banks. It's like you know bank gen, gene bank genetic diversity banks to protect the human species as well. But I don't think that's actually we don't need cystic fibrosis. One copy of the gene protects you against diarrhoea in developing countries. You don't need one copy of the gene here in the UK. You know it just puts you at a risk of having a child with cystic. Fibrosis. So the advantage that having evolutionary terms is completely. Irrelevant in in the kind of the sort of modern context that we live in. But I think the more important point that you make is at the heart of all of these debates is both a moral and an epistemological, or a moral relativism, and a doubt about our ability to predict. So first of all, people think, well, we don't really know what's good or bad. Okay, so you gave the example of dyslexia. Yeah. It's true that certain traits can be pleiotropic. I thought that's where the first question was going to be. Some genes have. Bad effects in some circumstances, but you know beneficial effects in others. So some people say there isn't—I think any good evidence of this at the moment—a you know, disposition to manic depression associated with creativity. So that's an example. In those case, we just don't know what to do. I mean, it's not clear what what what's valuable. So there's a huge grey area, as you as you say. But there are also black and white areas. There are some things which are there's you know a huge degree of consensus that are that are bad things. And that's why, for example, psychopathy. And there are th- things that <coughs> are uncontroversially good, like a reasonable level of impulse control. So the fact that we can't agree on lots of things in the grey zone shouldn't stop us from you know, looking at the things in the black and white zones. And the point about uncertainty, Tony Cody is in the audience, and he wrote this very nice piece for a collection on human enhancement that I edited, I think it was called Playing God. Anyway, he's very good on this playing God objection. And you often hear this, that you know, we're playing God, that... And this is best interpreted as saying we often arrogantly and hubristically proceed into complex systems without an adequate knowledge of, of the system. And we don't, we don't know exactly how it works. And, and this is one of those cases. And I completely agree with that. You know, I, I, you know, hooray for that principle. Um, should we ever act? No, I don't think that's the case. I think we should get more evidence and be, and be you know, doubly careful when it comes to complex systems. But at some point, when you're looking at the other side of the <coughs> river, you've got to either decide to try and cross it or stay on this side. And, you know, I, I just don't believe that... I mean, it's true that at this point we're not in a position to, to make decisions, but I don't think this is an overwhelming... People like Sandell and Habermas, that's not their objection. Their objection is, even if we knew exactly what the consequences would be, we shouldn't do it because we should only treat diseases. And, and it's against this sort of you know absolutist opposition to this... I agree with you at the moment. It's sort of more complicated than, you know, I've... Another thing about talks is their stories. I mean, you just... It's like a... You know, this is is a sketch of a kind of an idea, and, you know, in 40 minutes, you're not going to fill in all the details. Um, Yep, other... Janet, you had a question.
1: Well, it's a fairly obvious one. I think you said...
0: That we had the same kind of obligation to choose the best embryo as we had to
1: yeah.
0: give the children the best education. Yeah, that's it, it's same kind in, in a sort of in a loose sense of same kind. <laughs> yes, but well, I'd like to know exactly what the kind of. Embryo. Okay, well, so this is again. I, I, you know, I was sort of doing this for a kind of a uh, broader audience. Um, Janet is. Alluding to this, there's an important distinction between genetic selection or selection and enhancement. So, um, a famous example of this is deafness. So, there's a couple. Of, you know People with deafness often want to have a child like themselves. They want to use these technologies to select an embryo that's not hearing, but that's deaf. Okay. Now, another way to create a deaf child is to have a child who's hearing, and you deafen it give it streptomycin, put ice picks through its ears, whatever it is, cut its auditory nerves, both of them will result in a deaf child. But both of them are importantly morally different. Because although in both cases you, you, you have a child who's deaf, in my view, not in, in Derek Parfit's view, one of these is much worse than the other. The one where you deafen a child, you're harming that child, you're making that child worse off than it could have been, than it could have been, and it has a complaint against you. can say, if you hadn't put the ice picks through my ears, I could have been hearing and my life would have been better. So you, there is a clear harm, what's called a person-affecting harm, in cases like that, case of deafening. And when you enhance somebody, if you give somebody extra IQ points or some other valuable property, you're benefiting that person. In the case where you've got two embryos, Jack, who's deaf, and <coughs> Jill, who's hearing... And you select Jack, it's true you end up with a deaf child, but Jack hasn't been harmed by the act of selection because he can't say, well, if you'd selected Jill, I would have been better off. Somebody else would have existed. So this is an impersonal harm. It's a non person affecting harm. Brings a kind of harm into the world, or brings a sort of loss of value into the world, um, which I think is bad, but it's less bad than the case where you actually deafen the child. So I think. And again, people who want to select deaf children are doing the wrong thing. I think deafness is a disability, and can argue about that. But they should be allowed to do it, because it's not the same kind... People should not, however, be allowed to deafen their children or refuse cochlear implants for their children, because that's a person affecting harm. So different categories of harm. So I think what you're saying is I was kind of collapsing these yeah. two, and they are relevantly different. But for the purposes of... Uh, <coughs> You know, I could easily have changed, in fact I did at one point change, if you think that selecting a healthy embryo over a, non, over a diseased one, you know, is, is what you should do. You should also think that um, you should select a you know, more advantaged embryo over a more disadvantaged.
2: But did you say just then that you wouldn't allow people to deafen their hearing children? <laughs>
1: That
0: you would allow them to select yes. that embryo. Yeah. Why? Because, because, but I mean, I just said why. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, said um, why? So I'll just, I'll just restart re- it again because I think one is a person affecting harm, which yeah. I think is worse yeah. than an impersonal harm. So here's another example. What? Why? Um, well, it's just. I mean, it's at, at bottom level. You, you're not. You know, you're not actually affecting. Anyone, anyone's life. You are affecting the world, in one case, whereas in, in the other case, you're actually affecting some society. So th- you might think this is all highfalutin, you know, nonsense. But actually, climate change and, um, you know, all of the policies that people are talking about with climate change fall in to this category of impersonal benefit because they change the nature. So if you, if you know, if you get people to, I mean, Janet, Derek Parfit's a very nice example of this, 1984 if you get people to conserve energy so they turn off their lights earlier they'll have sex at a slightly different time, they'll have a slightly different um, they'll have a different sperm and a different egg or a different sperm anyway, so they'll, have a, they'll be a different individual so n- nobody w- no individual will benefit from our climate policies today They're, you know, w- when we talk with, so this is except in, in the case of geoengineering within a single generation I won't get into that debate but so the, the policies that we're talking about are like whether you know we should be selecting embryos um, and, and actually I think the obligations for that sort of thing are much weaker than the obligations to prevent person affecting harms so you know, it has profound implications for even things like climate policy um, Alex you had a question um uh.
4: I was glad you clarified your view about uh, various sources of reasons, and so what you're proposing, as you procreative beneficence, as you call it in the famous paper, is just one source of reasons. But you could have other sources of reasons, such as like the sexist society case, not to select a male uh, child. However, what you said about um, deaf children and deaf couples being allowed to select deaf children might raise concerns about impli- the implications of your view for public policy regarding all the cases where there are are disagreements between different social groups about what counts as a a a good trait a trait that makes your life go better so you've mentioned homosexuality various religious groups think that homosexuality is a disorder or it's sinful it's something intrinsically bad something that makes your life go worse they would have a strong motivation to select against this trait you could have lots of other examples ethnic traits uh, religiosity would be another controversial one. Uh, am I right that you are leaning towards some kind of liberal eugenics view, such as like Nicola Segar has proposed, which would cite, parents should be free to select the traits they want as long as it's not clear that they're harming existing people, <coughs> in which case we should accept that these religious people can select against homosexual children, they can select for greater relig- religiosity in their kids' assuming this is feasible and so on. Or do you think there are further constraints to be placed on regulation in those cases?
0: No, well, I agree with you. I mean, that you've accurately summarised the... put together the position. I would just sort of make this slight kind of thing is, is I don't think religiosity is as bad as homosexuality. I think people should be free to choose, you know. But I think they shouldn't be allowed. No, 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 I'm just, I'm just trying to... Wind, I'm trying to wind up... Totally, yeah. No, no, I, I, you're exactly right. That's, uh, you summarised my position very well. Um, Tom...
5: But I didn't really see what was the argument for your view that the current policy in the UK is more eugenic than, than your more liberal alternative. Mostly because I couldn't see, I didn't know what the metric of eugenicness that you were using was. But um, the thought seemed to be something like it's more coercive than a, uh, it's more restrictive than, a, than, than your liberal policy, so therefore it's more eugenic. But on that line, then the most eugenic policy would be banning all genetic selection in that presumably you're not going to say that that's the most eugenic problem, or maybe you are, but I presume you're not going to say that's the most eugenic policy. So what's your metric of eugenicness and why is
0: the UK policy more eugenic than the Yeah, sorry, I went through that very quickly. So what was wrong when people... Like, as I said, we, we do practice eugenics. So it's not that eugenics itself is is wrong. We, you know, when you screen for Down syndrome, that's eugenics. What people have in mind is what the Nazis did. Now, what was wrong what was What was wrong with what the Nazis did first of all, it was coercive, as you said, and indeed the policy that we have today is coercive it 's more coercive than the alternative language. but secondly, um, it was racist and social Darwinist okay and it aimed to impose a view of how society should be on people <coughs> and that 's exactly what happens today when you say this is the sort of society we should realise through restrictions in genetic testing. And secondly... and like, Sorry, thirdly... Um, uh, social... Um, i just lost my train of thought. So, the social... Um, that's right. And when you draw a distinction between diseases and health, you're making a decision implicitly... Well, you're making a decision about... Um, you know, in, to some degree, when it's legitimate to destroy embryos or, or fetuses, based on you know a certain quality that you decide is you know is is unfit for life or you know, essentially, so that's very similar similar to what, what the Nazis' policy was of drawing distinctions. So when you say that you know, people can make any choices they want, that's not what the Nazis thought. They thought that you know there were these intellectually disabled people that were a real problem, and so you know we should we should get rid of them. So when you allow testing for, for you know, um, Down syndrome and, and Fragile X, it's very similar to, to that kind of goal. Um, so, you know, in many different ways, it's much more similar to Nazi-style eugenics than, than the alternative allowing people and, you know, making choices sure, and, and more importantly, I think, in this case, you know, what I've tried to argue is on the basis of what a pretty uncontroversially... Um, grounds of well-being in children, you know, for the child themselves, you know, self-control, memory, intelligence, empathy, whatever it is, those sorts of things that have the, are child-centred, um, you know, that's much a long way further away from what the Nazis were atti- were trying to achieve, and also further than than the current policy. I think there's one at the back. Uh, uh, yeah. What's
5: your position on deaf parents who wish to have a deaf child and choose to death in the fetus?
0: Yeah. Well, what is my position about? Yeah, no, I, I think that, I th- well, you see, this is a very good, very good question. Because think about the fetus, fo- imagine that they deafen the fetus and the fetus grows up, you know, and they're 20 years old and they've found it's difficult being a deaf child or they face some obstacles. Can they complain about what the, what the parents, yes, they can. They can say, if you hadn't done that, um, then I could have been hearing. So that is a clear future person affecting him, even though it's not a present person. It's not like, me deafening you, which is de- you know, which is affecting you now. It's affecting future and this is an important again distinction that people miss in, in some debates. So there's a been a big move away from from involuntary cesarean sections on women who are in obstructed labour, or, or um, women who take you know abuse alcohol or drugs or whatever. Now. I think there's a big difference, a very big difference, between those sorts of actions that will kill the fetus, which is just like abortion, versus those that won't kill the fetus, but are like your case, that leaves the fetus with cognitive avoidable cognitive disability in the future. Now, if it's the second case, it's just like me smashing you over the head with a hammer and making you intellectually disabled. And nobody thinks I'm free to do that, yet people think that women are free to take actions that will result in exactly that future, future person affecting harm. And I just wrote when I was in Australia, a great example of this is home birth. Now, home birth is associated with just those sorts of increased risks of, of long-term morbidity. And yet people think it's a completely free choice, or even, you know, it's a better choice for the woman. It's not a better choice, you know. it's. It's actually an immoral choice. I mean, the, the only the only issue is the risk is quite small. But you know, if I did something that you know didn't that imposed a you know a one in a thousand chance of you brain damage, unless I had a really good justification for it, I'd be doing the wrong thing. But people don't view home birth like that. Uh, yeah. Does that mean that any germline genetics is immoral? Like, if you're
5: talking about future that effects, affecting. What does that mean? No, 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 if
0: it's beneficial it's it's strongly person you know benefiting so what, what's the
5: rest
0: are well then if it's, it, it's it's about it's about it. like giving a child an experimental intervention so you know that the, in this way germline genetic interventions are more problematic than genetic selection. So if you're worried so as I said in this movie you know, these people are really smart to make these movies they they have all the best people to sort of really kind of t- you know tweak all Exactly right. These are just children that these people could have had. But the best. But they could also be the worst, if you get it wrong. But that's not as bad, because they could have had them naturally anyway. You're not, you're not harming that person. But if you start doing germline or fetal interventions or whatever, you do, as you say. So the threshold for employing those should be much higher than it is for genetic selections. And again, you know, we wrote a paper on this... About ten years ago, I think there was another. Oh, Bennett, you had a question. Uh, so your new position on new position
5: on selecting deaf children. New position. The, uh, I think you used to say that that
0: was wrong. No, 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 I've got this paper called "Deaf Lesbians" in the BMJ that says it's it's permissible but wrong.
5: Right, uh, permissible but wrong. Okay, so and you say that the reason that it's permissible but wrong is the wrong is small because it's a it's yeah not a person affecting yeah. And you said that harms that aren't person affecting are just things that make the world uh, worse. Yeah. Right. So I've got that straight. So it seems like what you're saying is that acts of selection are morally neutral, uh, except where the balance is tipped by the effect that it will have on the world as a whole.
0: Well, I mean that
5: roughly, yes. Right, roughly. So you know, if I if I did a study and it turned out that that everything would go on balance better for the world if we had more <coughs> deaf children. Would that mean that, that we had a moral obligation to select some deaf children? Would that be... Oh
0: yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess there would be some moral obligation. So it's all right to
5: look at, at kind of um, society, like completely global effects of these choices and, and rather than sort of...
0: I mean, I mean, I mean, well yeah, I mean maybe you're getting it. So one another objection I often get is that well isn't the world better for having a kind of diverse like you know, range of people, you know, pe- some deaf people. Well, some deaf people might make that claim. Yeah, they make that claim. Um uh, you know, if that's the case, that does provide some reason. Um, but you know, I think it doesn't apply to things like psychopathy. And I've even heard people on radio industries go, yes, but you know, we maybe we need people with so, I mean, tell that to, to the kind of family of people who have been eaten in little pieces. You know, oh, you know, there's somehow some social benefit to having... That. So, you know, I, I think that, that argument can easily be abused to sort of justify anything. Um, but, you know, in principle, yes.
5: It's, it seems a little strange to me that the, you know, I'm looking at a dish of embryos and the only kind of moral considerations I have to take into account are, are these... Non-person
0: effects. No, no, but, you know, the things that... The, the traits that you're selecting for that affect the life of that... in You know, the sort of life that, that individual will lead are the most strongly influential ones. These sort of indirect social effects. are going to be, you know, probabilistic, weak, you know, uncertain... You know, and they're going to be less dominant in the decision. So, I don't... You know, I, I don't really see the worry... What? What, what, how would this cash out into a sort of worrying consequence?
5: Well, I mean, it just might be that... Uh, I guess if you're talking about uh, non-person affecting harms, being what's tipping the balance in this case, but I don't see why I'm suddenly going to worry about uh, the health... Uh, you know, on, on the way you were describing this, this set of concerns, why am I going to, to make a decision based on uh, well-being of my child? When I could make decisions about the well-being of society as a whole, so I might think, for example, that there's not uh, that, that there's too many white people in our society, and you know, I should try to pick a, the darkest-skinned embryo in my in my set because that will help to. And maybe, and it sounds like those sorts of concerns have to kind of then rank up higher than the ones that will affect the kind of well-being. Well,
0: oh, depends people. on how likely your you know act of selecting. You know, a dark-skinned child is going to be to, to affect the outcome. Whereas, you know, you know that if you select for self-control, it's pretty likely to have a significant effect. But these, you know, you making this sort of act is most likely symbolic.
5: I guess, I guess, just the, the general the thing I'm wondering in general is just how often this this kind of uh, commitment to this distinction between personal and impersonal harms is going to drive you away from worrying about beneficence to the child that you're having?
0: I think in most cases it doesn't make much difference. It's only in these sort of kind of really, you know, sort of fringe cases.